Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're continuing our occasional series on Rwanda. So far, we've talked with Michael Barnett and Sarah Brown and Herman Salton, and in the future, we'll be talking with Tim Longman and Aaron Jesse. Today, I'm thrilled to have John Nathaniel Clark on the show. John is the author of British Media and the Rwandan Genocide, published by Rutledge. And I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have. So, John, welcome to the show, and thanks for being joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks very much for having me, Kelly. So, John, we always start the same way, um, and that's to give you a chance to say something about your personal background and what you're doing now. Sure. So, um, I'm a Canadian, uh, born in Ottawa, Canada, to uh, a Pakistani mother who was from Quetta, uh, on the border with Afghanistan. Uh, and an Ulster Irish father, uh, also named John Clark, who is from Belfast. Um, so I grew up in Ottawa, and I think spent most of my time um, concerned about playing baseball more than uh, things academic. <laughs> uh, at least that's what my high school teachers uh, used to lament. Um, but nevertheless, I managed to get into university. I went to the University of Western Ontario, uh, and Huron College in particular, finishing uh, a degree in philosophy and politics, uh, and at Huron College. Um, and then on to Cambridge University, first at Clare Hall, where I did uh, a master's, an MPhil, uh, and then a PhD at Peterhouse. So um, I had an extraordinary experience both as an undergraduate and a graduate, and the, the good fortune to be around really interesting academics and, and peers as well. From there, uh, my career departed slightly from the more academic track. I uh, joined the office of the then Canadian Foreign Minister Lloyd Axworthy as a policy advisor um, and had a very intense two years uh, working for him uh, in a very demanding job um, and a very enjoyable job at a time when uh, I think Canada was uh, playing an important role around the world through uh, the minister and through uh, the prime minister at the time. Um, And then I worked a bit on the election, writing policy uh, elements for the Liberal Party platform, what we call the Red Book in Canada. And then departed from that, having really enjoyed my time working in politics and actually learned a great deal, things which I I still apply in my current job um, and in my role with the UN, um, I really felt I wanted to be closer to the reality of what was happening on the ground. I mean, I think it's one thing, Canada was on the Security Council when I was working for Minister Axworthy, and I think it's one thing to see uh, the process, uh, for better or for worse, through which council resolutions are drafted and uh, to a degree implemented. Um, but very different to be on the ground trying to interpret and apply those resolutions to crises. And so I joined the UN and served in a variety of roles um, on the humanitarian and recovery side, uh, doing policy-oriented work, for example, developing early warning methods to try and identify crises and prevention strategies before Mm -hmm. uh, they erupt. Um, But then also on the sharp end in Sudan, uh, where, among other things, I was in charge of negotiating access in a number of cases in a number of states and also um, leading the response and coordinating 
uh, the response to flooding in Sudan in 2007, in which we had, if I remember correctly, it was over a half million people affected. So it was, uh, it was a, a big enough emergency that it drew in a lot of resources and attention. Um, and then from there, I shifted gears. I, I moved uh, to the Middle East, uh, here to Jerusalem, uh, joined the Special Coordinator's Office, the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process, uh, who is then Robert Seri, uh, and is now Nikolai Mladenov. Um, and I'm now working as the head of the office of the quartet uh, here in Jerusalem. So it's a pleasure to, to be with you. And, and today um, I speak in a personal capacity, as you, if you might expect, as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you look at my CV, my parents once said, they said, you know, what, what are you doing with your career? And I said, well, I'm not really too sure. Um, and uh, I said, it's more serendipity than design. And, and they said, well, it's that, but it also makes it look like you can't hold a job down for more than two years, which may also be the case as well. So, so I've got to ask, so, so you, you've done a PhD. How, how, do, how, much, how often do you apply what you did as, a, as an academic and as a grad student to the job you do now? Mm. So I think that there are analytic skills uh, that I acquired as uh, doing a PhD and, and subsequently a postdoc, um, which still serve me well, um, whether that's in terms of actually thinking carefully through a problem or uh, undertaking uh, analysis. Um, I think the, that in the part that the period in Canadian politics really added was an understanding of how to move beyond the analysis to strategies for trying to affect change. And of course, academics do that a, a, a great deal. But I think it's also a very different thing when you are an actor in the room as opposed to an analyst outside the room. Um, so I would say that it's of enduring benefit and value, though I have to tell you that um, in preparation for this interview, I had to go back to my book to try and remember what I was on about when I initially wrote it. <laughs> That's all of our dirty secret, isn't it? That's right. I was going to say it might speak more to my limitations than to my academic background. I'm not really sure. No, <laughs> I, I I remember as a graduate student welcoming a, a very highly respected um, military historian who I still highly respect. And we had asked him there to talk about his new book, but I asked him a question about a book he'd written, oh, I don't know, a decade or so earlier. Uh, as a naive graduate student, fully expecting that it, this, this, this wonderful professor must remember everything he had written. And he just looked at me with this bemused look on his face. And he said, well, that book was 10 years ago. I don't remember that. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I feel better. Yeah. That gives me some measure of comfort. <laughs> um, your book's about the media and Rwanda. What, why did you, what drew, drove you to be interested in that topic? Well, I think that there were a number of factors. So I think that... Um, there was in my background before going to graduate school, I spent a time uh, working again in Canadian politics. There was uh, what we in Canada describe as a special joint committee on defense policy. So it's the House of Commons and the Senate um, that get together to try and prepare a strategy on uh, you know, Canada's defense expenditure and changes in structure of military, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I served as a staff member for one of the co-chairs of that committee, uh, Senator mm-hmm. DeBanais. Uh, Pierre de Benet, who's uh, was a very kind man, um, and you know the discussion that we had in that committee was yes about Canada's role at the time. There was a desire or a, a need for people to understand that um, in the mid 1990s, I think the committee filed its report in 1994 um, that there was a change from the traditional type of peacekeeping with which Canada had been most closely associated and contributed most effectively to to the type of peace enforcement and peacemaking uh, 
um, that was not just on the horizon, but already uh, a reality with the with the end of the Cold War. And so that was one set of discussions where, you know, it was very practical. And, and the moment that you um, shifted, and I don't want to underestimate the, the level of interest in broader uh, questions underlying intervention, its objectives, mm-hmm. et cetera, but it was a very policy, very practiced, uh, practically focused discussion. And in contrast, on the academic side, you know, uh, I had an abiding interest in uh, political theory, um, which I acquired from some tremendous professors at Huron College. Um, and that was not just domestic in terms of how uh, the body politics should be organized, but also questions about how we extend those values that we hold dear and feel are at the core of um, our, our political arrangements within countries. And how do we extend those beyond our own borders? And what are our obligations, et cetera? And so um, I became interested in uh, questions about ethics and humanitarian intervention. This is as a, a master's student now. And thought that the disagreements or the different views that people tended to have, whether you know, at a practical level, the committee members with which I dealt um, as a as a you know a support staffer to the the senator um, or other policymakers that the uh, core values the core issues that they had on intervention were in fact a deeper reflection of um, their ethical predispositions whether that was um, you know deontological arguments or consequentialism or cosmopolitan morality or communitarian morality and so uh, in a sense you know I found that neither side was having a a, a discussion with the other in a sensible manner, and so the interest in in trying to put those two things together um, uh, sort of led to this question about okay, if you're looking at how these ideas actually affect policy making, how these big ethical and philosophic ideas affect policy making, how do you do it? Um, and I think you know there are various traditions of intellectual history and ways of approaching these things, but my interest was in seeing okay. Um, how do these ideas manifest themselves in a debate about an actual intervention? Um, the media, of course, was uh, globalized at that stage, but there was greater access to stories which would traditionally not have been on uh, in the living rooms of Western countries, and let alone the policy agendas of states capable of intervention. And so uh, the notion or the intention was to try and create a way of measuring the use of those concepts and then statistically analyzing the extent to which they appeared to affect parliamentary debate and by extension, though the it's not a one-to-one relationship, uh, governmental policy. So uh, it's, a, it's a rather long answer to a fairly straightforward question, but I think it was just this fusion of two areas um, and then trying to work out, okay, if that's what I'm trying to study in microcosm, what is the right microcosm and how do we make this operational analytically? So, so that's an obvious. You've just given me a, a very handy bridge to the next question, which is, which is, how do you how do you do this? And let me start by saying, so, so, so you are the person who just used the word deontological, and although you didn't use R squared, you kind of imply it. Yes. How do you think of yourself as a as a scholar as you approach this? What are you? What is this book doing? Yeah. That's a kind of self-reflective uh, question that I'm not normally capable of answering. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't. I mean, I don't that, think that. Uh, sorry, Kelly, go ahead. No, no, go. You're up. You're up. Yeah. So I, I think um, I don't know that I thought of myself as, as really uh, anything within one uh, mm-hmm. discipline or or another. I mean, 
Um, you know, if uh, the the nature of the book and the analysis undertaken, I think, draws from um, to a degree the historical tradition, um, if only because you know I'm writing about things that took place 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's very social science oriented or statistically oriented in part of the analytic approach. Um, but then there are also heavy qualitative dimensions. You know, um, uh, historians don't have the luxury of interviewing uh, many of the people who were central to whatever endeavor they're studying simply because they're they're no longer with us. Um, I, on the other hand, was lucky in that, uh, you know, a number of men and women very graciously agreed to sit down and talk, whether that was uh, former Prime Minister Blair, Lord Hurd, uh, uh, you know, um, Sir Malcolm Rifkind, uh, and a range of journalists as well that were actually involved in covering uh, the crisis. So I guess the answer is, is that I, th- I guess I suppose I see myself as a pragmatist. I don't know if that's uh, mm. acceptable academically these days, but I don't feel I don't feel wedded to any one tradition. Um, and I don't think I ever thought of myself as in, in one tradition. I have to say it did it did create challenges for me because um, at the time at Cambridge, the the uh, international relations sat within the faculty of history. Um, mm which, you know, is a legacy of, I think, the way in which the discipline had been viewed um, in Great Britain. Um, and so I, th- I think I was something of a mystery to many of my colleagues. And I, uh, and I remember um, being uh, invited to give a lecture at um, what the time was a, you know, a, a pretty big deal for me, a lunchtime seminar series where the faculty and uh, graduate students would come and people would be invited, invited from outside. And I remember launching into this discussion about R-squared results and T-tests and all the rest of it. And I looked up from what I was delivering and saw um, either, you know, a great need for volumes of coffee to keep people awake or utter confusion. Um, And so I asked, you know, uh, is this familiar to anybody? And of course, no one said anything. Now, at the end of this, the the funny part of the story was that my supervisor, uh, Jeffrey Edwards, um, who was also a great supervisor and was a very good friend to me while uh, going through this PhD, asked a question. And he said, look, uh, this is all terribly interesting, and it's clear that you can add and you can subtract. But, you know, uh, the question is, you know, why bother? And at the time, I thought, geez, you know, thanks very much, Jeffrey. Um, But but actually, in a sense, it was the most important question that he could have asked, um, because uh you know you, it's very easy to have a statistical sledgehammer for problems that are or issues that are relatively straightforward and and in a sense both in undertaking the analysis and also um in writing it up in a manner that you know one hopes someone might eventually read putting the statistics in the background and actually writing uh, the story of what a, what happened and why this was important etc is fundamental and the statistics are are supportive evidence but not the core of what we're trying to achieve it was also the case I discovered later that my future uh, two examiners, James Mayall uh, and Ian Clark, were in the room. So I think <laughs> Jeffrey might have been anticipating the questions that they were going to ask me as part of my viva. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I remember distinctly sitting in a in a lecture where uh, two widely read and, and very well-respected historians were debating chaos theory and nonlinearity and what role that would play. And, and they got a number of questions in the same kind of vein that you mentioned. And, and their kind of astute response was was not to explain the science behind or the mathematics behind nonlinearity, but just to look out at the crowd and say, what are you afraid of? Uh-huh. And I think that's actually kind of a valuable question to ask people who are 
unfamiliar with quantitative methods and it, mm-hmm. it, it is often challenging to teach yourself or to learn those quantitative methods but but to recognize that they are simply a method by which to get at what happened rather than something to fear um I have to say, what made me afraid of your book is the volume of work you did in okay. looking at these newspapers. Um, I'm glad it was you and not me. Um, <laughs> so, so how did you choose what sources to look at, what newspapers to look at, newspapers rather than TV? How did you make those kind of choices, and and, and how did you actually sit down and do this analysis? Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the first newspapers versus TV. Um, I mean, it's a good question. You know, at the in the 1990s, I think it was Boutros Ghali who said that CNN is now uh, the 16th member of the Security Council, um, and there was uh, a feeling that you know graphic images that shocked the conscience of man, uh, humankind, mankind, were going to uh, have a very tangible effect on on people's decision making. Um, and so uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein um, was famously quoted as uh, referring to an image um, from Srebrenica uh, of a young woman hanging from a tree. And, and that changed fundamentally her view um, on what what policy should should be pursued. Now, certainly TV has an incredibly important influence, but there are a couple of points that are worth noting. One is that in the UK, in particular, uh, past studies by people like Nick Gowing, who himself is a, a television presenter, re-emphasize the fact or reconfirm the fact um, that, in fact, it's it's the quality press that appears to be an editorial opinion in particular that appears to be uh, most important in influencing British policymakers. Added to that is the fact that, of course, there are you know are clipping services so that. Um, you know, even when I worked in politics, every morning there was a stack that was a summary of, of the news that had come through, and it, it was print. Um, so that tended to be reconfirmed in some of the, the interviews that I undertook. Um, you know, Malcolm Rifkin said, talked about uh, the uh, fact that what he learned was the same as what the public learned, because they were all reading the same newspapers. Um, and uh, Tony Blair also uh, made the point um, and I think this is also borne out by previous analyses that, you know, there is a relationship between the two that very often, despite the fact that the mediums are different and that um, you can convey different types of information with a different intensity and depth uh, electronically versus in print, um, that, you know, often uh, the electronic media took their ideas for stories and analysis from the print media. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I think that there's a reverse influence as well. So all of this to say that there was a there was a substantive argument as to why uh, print media was going to be uh, a better set of data in terms of uh, looking at political effect. Uh, there was also a very pragmatic reason because uh, this research, I think I started, um, gosh, eight, 15, 18 years ago. I can't uh, even remember when, a long time ago, but long before LexisNexis and this, yeah. uh, right? And so the data was derived from a CD-ROM at the Cambridge University Library. And when I tried to go and get uh, electronic data on on television, on the BBC or ITN, et cetera, um, it, there was no guarantee that it was complete. There was a, a BBC archives at um, Reading that I visited for a week and came to the conclusion that I couldn't guarantee that uh, even if I retyped all of the, the data or the, the material that was there, which was very good, um, that I couldn't assure that it was complete, that I had everything mm-hmm. 
Um, and moreover, uh, just the sheer amount of time that it would have taken to transform that data into an electronic format for analysis was uh, ultimately prohibitive. So, so for reasons of uh, substance and necessity, um, the print media made a, a, a great deal of sense in terms of what to look at. There's also, as you know, a tradition um, in Britain of war reporting, um, and that being a, a place where uh, British journalists had uh, a tremendous influence uh, in the past. So for historical reasons as well, the print media um, made a great deal of sense. Um, in terms of you know selecting methods, I mean, I think we've alluded to it already that um, you know, there is a danger that if you simply run regressions, you're going to find um, uh, answers and correlations um, which you may be unable to explain unless you're actually talking to people who were involved in decision making of a, of a crisis or whatever social science phenomenon it happens to be. Um, and so, uh, as a hedge or as a counterweight to um, just a strict statistical analysis, um, obviously there was a chunk of background reading that I did, but also, um, you know, these interviews again were absolutely central because, you know, you could go or I, I did go and, and took the results with me and said, okay, here is, here is what this looks like in terms of statistical mm. results. How does that fit your recollection of what was happening at the time? Huh. Um, right. And so both in terms of, in some cases, helping steer, uh, the line of statistical analysis or in helping in the interpretation of the data, um, meeting all of these decision makers and journalists from the time was was absolutely central to getting a more complete, rounded picture uh, of what we think is going on in this analysis. When you started, or let me back up, was what did... Did historians or social scientists or people writing about media coverage in Rwanda as you were starting this research, mm. was there kind of a pre-existing consensus on the role of, of, of British media and, and its coverage of Rwanda when you were starting? Mm. So there, there was, and uh, only recently I think this has changed, but there was mm. very little uh, analysis writ large on the role of the media um, in British political decision making, there was. I remember a book, uh, reading a book by I think it was Martin Shaw called uh, "Global Civil Society and the Media" or something along those lines. Hmm. Um, and so, in contrast with the United States, where there was uh, an emerging literature, um, I think in part driven by uh, you know what happened in Somalia and the way in which that was interpreted. Um, Stephen Livingston and other doing uh, others doing quantitative research in that form. In the UK, there was there was far less uh, to hand. Um, what mm. there was in the case of, of Rwanda were, um, I would say, you know, very immediate reflections from uh, many journalists and analysts and others who who sought to understand or to explain what it was that had happened. Um, and I mean that not in the sense of what happened on the ground, but the ways in which the media. Uh, contributed to, depending if in one view or failed uh, in another, um, or were responsible um, in the phrasing of of one article um, that I read for the genocide. Now, um, one one can understand where that, I suppose, uh, emotional underlying impulse comes from, because you know the the tragedy and the horror uh, of Rwanda. Um, you know, people wanted to explain what had gone wrong. But I guess there were two points. One is that ultimately the analyses were not uh, as 
they were they were based on anecdotal evidence. Um, let, mm. Let's put it that way. Um, and impressions of people, some of whom had actually been involved, um, and who, uh, in the case of one off-the-record interview, which is not in the book, um, and felt a sense of responsibility for not having mm. done as much as they could uh, to draw attention to the crisis. This is something that I deal with in the book and try and uh, counter, because I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, more recently, in the last number of years, there have been uh, new... Uh, analyses um, that have done. Uh, Hazel Cameron uh, has written mm-hmm. a, a book. Um, there's another book called The Ignorant Bystander, uh, all of which are sort of contributing to, um, you know, a better understanding of what happened. And and in some cases, the analysis that I've undertaken um, supports some of the conclusions. And in some cases, it goes very much in a, a different direction or uh, at least provides additional layers of understanding, I hope, beyond some of the things that have been written before. So you look really closely at the cal- more or less the calendar year of 1994. So, so let's start by saying, just, just asking, what, what did British, ordinary British citizens know about what was going on in Rwanda in that first month or two or three of, of 1994? Mm. Yeah, that's a it's a good question, and and it's hard to answer that um, in the sense that you know I I have a sense of what the uh, newspapers were writing about, um, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that it was uh, entering the conscience uh, or consciousness of of British citizens. Um, uh, certainly not in the same way as Bosnia Herzegovina was um, because of the British commitment there. So I think you know both in terms of the level of coverage and in terms of understanding. Um, in that sort of pre-genocide phase in advance of 6 April, um, I think it's fair to say that the the understanding would have been relatively limited. Um, And, you know, Britain has, of course, historic links to Uganda, a neighboring country, um, but no historic links to Rwanda per se. Um, There was no diplomatic, British diplomatic representation or no no embassy uh, in Rwanda. It was covered, if I remember correctly, out of Uganda. And so the sources are the the amounts of input that could be provided both to the public and also for that matter um, to within the precincts of officialdom um, were were more limited than they would have been for uh, other countries in which there was a, a core interest or or a historical link. I think one of the things that's interesting is that you know in the very limited amount of coverage that takes place in phase one, uh, this is in the pre-genocide phase up to six April. There were a number of stories that actually made it very clear that there was uh, a risk of violence, um, not just in Rwanda, but in Burundi because of the the, the link between those two countries. Um, and so you would have had to look awfully hard for it. Um, but there were a couple of stories and a couple of indications of um, the, the problems that were uh, emerging with the broad-based transitional government uh, and also the resurgence of a degree of political violence that uh, could have been understood as early warning, uh, a partial early warning of what was to come. And you mentioned phase one. And so what you do in the book is to, to divide the, the crisis into to four phases. So, so maybe could you just kind of quickly go over what those phases were? And and I know this is asking an enormous amount of you in a short period of time, but maybe summarize the, the way in which media responded in each of these four phases. Sure. No, happily. I mean, um, so the purpose of dividing the the crisis into four phases, um, I I mean, one way to do it is to say, okay, based on the data, we're going to to divide 
um, uh, you know, these phases up. Um, the other way to do it is to say, okay, based on major events that were taking place, mm -hmm. we're going to separate out analytic time periods and then compare them to one another. Um, and so uh, phase one is the period in advance of the genocide. Uh, phase one, or uh, phase, sorry, phase two is the, the period at the peak of the genocide. Phase three is where the refugee crisis, where there is continued violence in parts of Rwanda, but the refugee crisis begins in earnest. And phase four is the post-crisis uh, phase in which um, there is a diminishing level of attention. And I think, you know, without going into the depths of the statistics around it, you one finds that there are some interesting things that emerge as a result of these four phases. Um, so in the first phase uh, of media crisis, there is um, there has traditionally, or one of the criticisms has been, that uh, coverage misrepresented the nature of what was going on. Um, it failed to identify uh, the underlying causes and organization of the violence. Um, and it was slow to declare what was happening as a genocide. Now, um, that those statements uh, are true of some parts of the coverage of the crisis. And, and in the book, of course, I separate out what I describe as center-right newspapers and center-left newspapers. But when you look at the quality of the coverage uh, and the accuracy of the coverage, uh, there's no monopoly on on quality on the on the center left or the center right. So, you know, the Times had Catherine Bond writing, um, who very quickly uh, was writing about um, governmental uh, involvement and uh, government force involvement, uh, not just. Um, in uh, in dealing with Unimir and and the de the very sad death of a series of peacekeepers, but also uh, in the organization at the checkpoints, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Lindsay Hilsom uh, was doing the same. Uh, Mark Cuban uh, also, uh, and Mark Doyle, who was with the BBC, um, he made the point in a, a, a chapter that he wrote for a book that you know at the start. Um, you know, it did look chaotic. Um, but if that's the case, that that understanding of chaos quickly transformed into something quite different on the part of most of the journalists that were on the ground, or many of the journalists that were on the ground. And they were accurately reflecting certainly the scale of the violence, the brutality of the violence at the at these variety of checkpoints that had been assembled by the Interahamwe. And in some cases, not all. Um, they were accurately reflecting on the underlying political drive that appeared to be part of this. Um, so, so right away one sees you know, uh, that you know in looking at phase two, um, the the well-meaning criticism that the media failed actually is not entirely accurate. Um, and and so uh, then if you look at in comparison with that high quality coverage, um, again accurately reflecting events on the ground and also doing a pretty reasonable job of reflecting on the politics and the Security Council, et cetera, there is a gap between that and the quality or the um, level of engagement of the opinion and editorial pages. Um, and that's extremely interesting because, as I mentioned before, you know, we traditionally think that the editorial pages have, and particular columnists, have a tremendous influence on decision-making. But when you look at the editorials, um, you know, the high-caliber coverage on the ground um, was not always reflected in the analysis and the editorial opinions that were being expressed. Hmm. There were one or two exceptions very early on. The Guardian, I think, in the first week, uh, published an editorial saying, 
um, that a serious reinforcement of Unimir was now required. Um, but then that level of focus diminished very quickly. And this was um, interesting because General Dallaire, uh, Major General Dallaire, who I interviewed for the book, mm-hmm. um, made exactly that point, you know, that he had uh, deliberately set up a pooled system of reporters so that the resources that he had, and, and he uh, indicates that this was quite intentional, that he was trying to use the media to influence decision makers, was able to get them out to the stories, hence the accurate reporting, but that he did not engage uh, at the editorial level in the newsrooms of influential newspapers, et cetera. And I think he he cites that in the interview, and I cite him in the book as saying that that um, was potentially a, a failure um, not just of coverage, but also of his mm. his engagement. So this, uh, this is a long answer. There's lots more to say about phase two of the crisis in terms of what concepts and words were uh, most prevalent. But a second dimension when one compares phase two and phase three, so again, the, the peak of the crisis and the, um, and the refugee phase, is that when you compare the amount of coverage total per week um, and uh, look at what in statistics is called the difference of means test to see if there's a statistical difference between the level of coverage in those two phases, there is no difference. Um, yes, it is slightly higher in phase three, but that difference is not statistically significant. Um, now, what does that tell us? It, it uh, in a sense, runs counter to another very traditional explanation, which is that uh, once the refugee crisis started, that the refugee crisis was massively overcovered compared to the crisis during the peak of the genocide, during that that second phase. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're able to see that actually there was not as much of a difference. Yes, it's true that in the first two weeks of what I described as phase three, there was a surge in reporting, but that the overall difference between the two phases is explained by differences not in reporting on the ground or political reporting, but by changes in analysis, letters to the editor, um, et cetera. So this gives rise to the possibility of what I talk about as a, a multiplier effect, which admittedly taking place in phase three, um, so beyond the point where it could have influenced decision-making in that critical second phase during the genocide, but where one sees the dynamic of how coverage can evolve and snowball. Um, again, I call it a, a multiplier effect, but effectively it's a snowballing of coverage where different types of story when written um, produce another type of story. So a report from on, on the ground produces a statement in parliament, which is reported upon. That report then leads to a letter to the editor or a piece of analysis trying to explain what's happening. And gradually, each one feeds off the other so that once there's analytic interest in the story, then there's a greater incentive to report from the field and also a greater incentive for politicians to maybe say something about what's happening. So again, the four-phase division, and I'm, I'm not um, covering all of the kind of findings, but mm-hmm. broadly speaking, it allows for that type of comparison and and in a sense, the t- a, a statistical testing of some of the received wisdom. And as I, I've just pointed out, there are two good examples of received wisdom, which are not borne out by this analysis. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a wonderful summary. Um, if I could, so I, I, I know that at least among my journalist friends, they will talk about the difference between text and images. Is there, is there a way for you to capture that? And and to what degree are there? I mean, is photojournalism an important part of the coverage that reporters are doing? And and how would you measure the impact of pictures as opposed to words? 
Yeah, it's a good question, and I don't have a very good answer. I mean, um, I have tendencies towards Luddism, and and I'm fairly hopeless, <laughs> right? When it comes to when it came to using um, textual analysis programs, um, so the prospect of trying to uh, categorize yeah. images was uh, beyond my mental capacity at the time, um, and so so it's a good question, and, and I don't really have a, a very good answer. Um, I mean, what I've what I've seen in looking at some images, or even when um, you know a friend of mine and I would be looking at an article, and that article would be accompanied by an image, that the images could lend themselves to different interpretations as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, that and that room for interpretation is reduced in the text that follows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so in a sense, the the image can I think draw people into um, uh, an interest or horror or um, some emotional connection to what's going on. Certainly, I, I mean, we saw that in, in images in Sudan and elsewhere um, that were just absolutely brutal, um, but. Uh, but you know, it's the narrative that comes with it that ultimately is mm-hmm. going to give uh, context to that image, and also that narrative which is going to, if we believe, you know, Nick Gowing, which I do, and others, um, is going to give meaning to politicians that are thinking not just about being outraged, which they are obviously, but about what is it that we can actually do about this in practical terms. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I think for, again, from that point of view. This was one of the reasons why, both because of my ineptitude and also because of the value of um, the the language and the role that that played in decision making, I ended up focusing much more on the on the uh, the the textual side. I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested in hearing what your journalist friends say about that, how they see that link. Yeah, I, that would be a really interesting discussion. I think there is a I think there is a belief that images are often more more influential than words but i've never seen i'm and and i'm not a media studies person so there may be studies on this i'm not aware of um but i've never seen any real careful attempt to analyze how that works and to what degree that's true and if people who you know i don't know if people who are mesmerized by an image go on to read the story or simply look at the image and move on i mean that's that's a, I guess it's another book topic for you and all your free time. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, there's an in the same. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go. No, no, go ahead. So, I, so I think that uh, you know, you're, what you were just saying reminded me. I remember getting onto God, I can't even remember where it was now, but getting onto a helicopter somewhere, and we had a journalist from a very prominent Western newspaper, um, and you know, it was a big emergency, and there was. Uh, um, uh, a fairly substantial humanitarian and security and uh, crisis and a military conflict that was causing these things. And as we got on to this helicopter to go to um, this particular area, um, the, the journalist was lamenting the fact um, that they didn't have a photographer. Um, and the point that they were making is that their chances of getting a prominent place in their newspaper were greater if huh. the photographer was actually able to take photographs rather than if that person was just writing a story. Now, to my recollection, and it wasn't my decision to take, but I think we ultimately um, found, you know, uh, a bag of something for the photographer to sit on. And um, the poor guy sat there and felt, I'm sure, nauseous the whole way or bounced around. But but it, the the anecdote, I suppose, is to the point about the impact that um, that the images have in getting the written word 
in mm. a in a prominent position in a newspaper. Mm. You know, page one above the fold kind of thing. Yeah. Huh. And of course now, not not really relevant to your book, but with the new internet culture of newspapers and, mm. and, and, and friends of mine who work in news tell me that that the way newspapers are framed and edited has changed completely, that at least the newspapers they work at the first thing they worry about is the way it will look online. And then the last thing they worry about is how it will actually look in print. Right. And images have, have again, become even more important. Um, so, so there's lots more to say about the media coverage, but, but, but I'm keeping an eye on the time. Um, you also look at the parliamentary debate and you try and see if there's some kind of feedback loop or some kind of way in which the media coverage um, influences the debate. So maybe we can start that by just very briefly outlining what we now know about the policy of the British government toward events in, in Rwanda and the factors that shape that policy. Sure. I, uh, you know, um, I mean, it's an interesting case because there was uh, uh, a very clear, um, well-established, uh, I think, position in, in parts of the British government that was articulated uh, in Parliament at the start of, of the crisis. And I, I go through this a little bit in the book, but there was, um, I think, uh, an understandable skepticism about what people were framing uh, as the, the new world order. Um mm. There was that that great line uh, that is attributed to uh, Prime Minister Thatcher, uh, where when someone said to her, uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, is talking about the end of history, she said, the end of history, the beginning of nonsense. Um, <laughs> and so so in that, uh, you know, hopeful moment where people were proclaiming uh, a new world order, where the weak would be protected from the strong, et cetera, et cetera, um, there was... Uh, you know, a, a skepticism um, that uh, that that would be borne out in the reality of what would unfold, and I think many of those that made that argument would likely feel vindicated by how things have uh, since unfolded. There was a second element, which was, and I, you know, again, um, I think that it, this was a, a common thread in some of the interviews that I had with British decision makers that um, that there was a limited capacity to actually intervene. That the um, that the, the limits of Britain's military capacity were not infinite, uh, and that there was an understanding, uh, based on what was argued to be Britain's experience in Northern Ireland, that this was not also um, a commitment of you know uh, months; that it was potentially a commitment of quite a number of years, et cetera, et cetera. So that was, um, I think, a second component about capacity and the nature of what was required. Um, and then I think a third one, and it's interesting because I think this has been borne out by some of the interviews that, uh, again, I've done, especially with um, Sir Malcolm Rifkind, um, is that there was not a complete understanding of the dynamics of such crises and the ways in which mm -hmm. intervention could be undertaken. Um, and uh, Sir Malcolm, in the interview, which uh, is quoted in the conclusion of the book, essentially makes that point that, you know, um, he feels differently now, as many others do about the probability of success. And so if Rwanda was mm. unfolding over a number of months and there was the prospect of doing something, um, I'm paraphrasing him now, but uh, his answer his answer was yes. Um, Prime Minister Blair said the same thing in, in the interview that I, I conducted with him. Um, and of course, you know, in the case of Sierra Leone, uh, you know, his government did act. It acted in other cases as well, as we all know, 
um, uh, with results that were varied, um, but nevertheless, that this this interventionist impulse did sort of uh, turn around. So, mm. I think those were I think four four factors. And again, I mean, you know, uh, to their credit, they were articulated very clearly at the outset of the crisis, um, mm. with you know Lord Hurd in the in the Commons saying that we shouldn't pretend that we can do uh, everything, and we don't have the the ability to act. Uh, as uh, a policeman or judge or universal soldier. Um, mm. And that that fact doesn't mean that we can't do anything. Um, Bosnia-Herzegovina is in Europe, and that is something that we're already committed to, etc. So all of this to say that one can litigate the merits of the arguments that were made, um, but there was no policy ambiguity within the British government. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Mm. Um, I think the other dimension is that, you know, there was an internal political uh, question. So again, um, Sir Malcolm uh, Rifkin went interviewed for the book, and of course he was defense secretary and a very uh, successful um, and well-regarded defense minister among other roles that he played. You know, in the interview for the book, he made the point that even in the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina, it was becoming jolly difficult to keep the entire cabinet on board with a military uh, commitment from Britain there, and that there were Hmm. others, other very senior ministers, um, who felt that a commitment in Bosnia was arguably a mistake. Um, So his point, of course, is because we were discussing Rwanda, is that if it was was difficult to convince cabinet to commit in a military manner, British cabinet, to Bosnia-Herzegovina, it was going to be even more difficult politically to convince them to commit to Rwanda. Um, and of course, you know, he didn't make this argument, but I, one wonders if, if one had come with uh, another request for action in Rwanda, um, would that have undermined the argument on Bosnia-Herzegovina? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, I suppose the question that, that one asks as a result is, well, you know, it need not have been Britain on its own. Was there the possibility of a coalition? Was there the possibility of a diplomatic um engagement through the Security Council. And of course, the Security Council had uh, many debates, um, both open and closed, and some of the records of those debates have since become public. Um, <clears throat> but were there other things short of um, a British-led intervention that could have been done? And I think arguably the answer that they've come to themselves is is yes. Um, so so I think that that's a, an interesting point of departure. The one other thing that I'll say on this just very briefly, because I think it's important, is that um, there has been, or even at the time of the crisis, there was one uh, uh, columnist um, who, uh, I think reflecting on the decisions that Great Britain was making, um, said that uh, that the intelligentsia, uh, I think he used the phrase English intelligentsia, I'm sure he meant British, um, was... <laughs> was such that um, there was an undeclared racism um, mm. and that, uh, you know, that the people of Rwanda, and here again, I'm paraphrasing, were seen as savages who were irrational and this was uh, ungovernable and uninfluenceable and therefore no action should be taken. I mean, my experience in, in both the discussions with these people who I think this columnist would have charged with that is that that's, that's not the case. Um, uh, now, setting absence of racism as a benchmark um, is probably not particularly helpful, but certainly mm-hmm. there was, uh, and I think it's again reflected in the interviews, a recognition that a mistake was made and that finding a way in which to deal 
with future similar situations as uh, the British government did in the post-crisis phase, where they came up with a number of ideas. Uh, Lord Hurd in the uh, General Assembly, um, at the UN General Assembly, and a number of others on how to forestall such crises in future. Um, positions that were entirely consistent with their view that uh, Britain could not play the role of world policemen. So, you know, there was an argument about the norms that would govern that Prime Minister Blair took up, and actually, which Lloyd Axworthy, again, who I who I worked for in my first job after grad school, took up as part of the International Commission on Intervention in State Sovereignty. Um, but also from you know Lord Heard ideas about how the OAU could play a more prominent uh, preventive and peacekeeping role um, in crises that emerge. So uh, again, it's a case where uh, you know one can argue the merits and demerits of each of those ideas, and and I think that they're sort of rarely is 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 one a unanimous success. They're all a mixed bag. Um, but the point was that uh, you know they were not simply uninterested; they actually were interested in trying to make a difference. It's just that during the peak of the crisis, that did not happen. Hmm. So, so how, most of that discussion quite reasonably focused on cabinet level discussions. What, how much, how extensive was discussion in parliament itself? Yeah, no, I, I, that's right. I mean, um, so uh, the first observation that's worth making is that the total number of interventions uh, in parliament in both the commons and the lords uh, was 187, or sorry, 184. Um, and that's, you know, roughly two thirds in the House of Commons and one third uh, in the House of Lords. And that's about 10% of the total number of news stories that were written uh, about the crisis. So the first observation is that there is a, a very big difference, a massive number of sort of order of magnitude of the level uh, of individual attention that Rwanda had in Parliament from from the amount of newspaper coverage that it received. Now, that's not a fair metric because obviously parliamentary debate is a very different thing than writing a news story. Um, but I would say that overall, um, with the exception of a number of uh, very committed and um, you know uh, very uh, strong and, and I think we could also say principled individuals like. Uh, particularly Tony Worthington um, and uh, a number uh, of others, um, there was not a broad-based level of interest uh, in the crisis. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of reasons for that. I think, you know, um, Prime Minister Blair in the interview with him, you know, indicated that the Labour Party was focused on succession. I mean, um, and that there were another a number of elements that were attracting attention elsewhere, which meant that Rwanda... Um, perhaps didn't receive uh, the consideration um, that it, it it deserved. Um, you know, when I interviewed Tony Worthington for the book, um, he became a, a cabinet minister. I think uh, uh, maybe he was working on Northern Ireland. You know, he made the point that it uh, that the intervention that he took, which was one of the longer ones, um, took place in the context of an adjournment debate. Um, and the phrase that he used was, that, you know, a, 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 an intervention at the end of the day while a million people have died, it's sick. Um, uh-huh. And so that was, I thought, uh, telling and also very interesting. But I would also say that for the most part, you know, there was never a moment in Parliament where someone said, uh, you know, here is what we should be doing. Um, mm-hmm. There was never a moment in the media, except with the exception maybe of the op-ed that I referred to earlier, where um, an op-ed or an analysis came out and said, look, here are the four things that Britain can do right now or that the UN can do right now um, to forestall slow, 
prevent whatever it might be, this crisis from continuing. Um, and so oddly, I would say that in, well, maybe not oddly actually, but both in both the media and in parliament, um, there was a consensus that this was desperate and outrageous, but little indication of what ought to be done uh, in order to remedy the situation. Um, and I think interesting that that probably has changed um, since that time. Um, you know, if we uh, look at the vote that was undertaken um, by uh, Prime Minister Cameron's government on uh, airstrikes in Syria, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was, and that was what now, four years ago, three years ago, I don't remember when, um, you know, that evidenced a level of parliamentary engagement. It was a very different issue, of course, um, than, than what we saw in the case of, uh, of, of Rwanda. So again, I mean, I think it was, it was interesting that there, that there was not a groundswell of support. Uh, you know, some of the bigger players um, who were very involved in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, Patty Ashdown, Robin Cook, were, were not showing a great deal of interest in, in talking a lot um, about, about Rwanda. So in the way you phrased that, and I don't remember the exact words you used, but you, you essentially presented parliamentary and military, sorry, not military, media opinions and, and discussions as proceeding in parallel. To what extent do they, or at least maybe adopting similar positions um, without necessarily having a feedback, does the media coverage actually influence these debates or, or, or can we know that? Yeah. So uh, I think the answer um, is yes. Uh, and so one of the things that I spend time on, because ultimately it was the real purpose or the test that I wanted to try yeah. was looking at, okay, what, what are the relations between, you know, we have 156 media concepts that we've, we've looked at and we've, you know, tried to work out how they might influence things. We've pared that down to 15 now, of those 15, when we use multivariate statistics, and I'll try and keep this relatively simple, um, but when we lose multivariate statistics, what do we find out about what types of concepts, when used in the media, appear to correlate with the amount of parliamentary debate? And there, the, the findings are actually kind of interesting um, and um, are also you know, intuitively sensible. So, for example, over the course of the entire year, uh, human rights has the greatest influence over the amount of parliamentary debate. Huh. And for for those that are so inclined, there the R squared value is at 0.286. So that's a measure of the level of explanation that's being achieved between those two variables. In phase two, you have a similar level of explanation, but for one variable, and that's military intervention. So the more that the media is talking about military intervention, the more parliament is talking about the crisis in Rwanda. And that also is sensible because if you are, um, as a matter of conviction, do not want to intervene um, in uh, in the crisis and and have reasons that you feel explain why that is, when a newspaper uh, says we should intervene, you may feel a sense of obligation to refute that argument, or you may feel a desire to support that argument. But that's a concept that really matters. Um, and then in phase four, uh, and I'll, I'll come to the kind of broad conclusion in a minute, um, disease and refugees becomes really important. And there we have a, a very high level of explanation, the R squared of 0.407, but with what's described as a negative beta coefficient. So it's a negative relationship between the two variables. So the more that the media is talking about disease and refugees, the less parliament is debating Rwanda as a whole. And so... Huh. 
there's the suggestion, and I think that you know this would require more analysis and disentangling. But what it seems to suggest is statistical evidence, or statistical uh, proof is too strong, but some evidence of what we've traditionally talked about as compassion fatigue, right? Um, that when a when a crisis receives a lot of attention, gradually people dial out, and so here by phase four. Um, you know, other things are being discussed and, and disease and refugees, which is extremely important in phase three, becomes less important. And then two, two final observations and then kind of the, the punchline of all of this um, statistical stuff. Um, when one looks finally at lagging media coverage with parliamentary debates, so when I compare, for example, um, day one coverage or week one coverage in the media with week three in parliamentary debate, um, you come up with a surprisingly strong model, which explains 64%, 65% of the variability in uh, parliamentary debate. And those concepts are human rights, regional impact, and other crises. So, so here, again, you know, we're seeing, uh, broadly speaking, conclusion one is that concepts actually matter, and they mattered far more than the raw amount of coverage. So, um, the content of coverage is extremely important, or a better uh, predictor, or a better achieves better correlations with parliamentary debate than the absolute amount of parliament of, of media coverage. Sorry, so that's one big conclusion. Now, the other way to look at it, and you may remember that um, you know Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman did a lot of work on manufacturing consent, and um, there was a lot of work done by Daniel Holland on, on this as well in the uncensored war about uh, Vietnam, if I remember correctly. And, you know, the other possibility, the other argument is that, you know, politicians are seeking to use the media. Um, and, you know, we know that to be the case, just even based on um, an interview again with Prime Minister Blair, where he said exactly that for this book. So the question then is, OK, um, is Parliament in any way affecting the amount, parliamentary debate affecting the amount of media coverage. Now, the answer to that is that in terms of concepts, not really. Um, and broadly, in terms of the amount of parliamentary debate, uh, not really either with one exception, uh, which is that the uh, amount of parliamentary debate affects the amount of media debate or media coverage one week afterwards. So huh. all of this to say that we have what I talk about as a, a dual movement of sorts, where we have the media, their conceptual content affecting uh, the amount of debate in particular phases, in particular ways. We have a lag where, uh, you know, two weeks afterwards, it appears that certain concepts are giving us a really good explanation of the amount of parliamentary debate. But we also have the amount of parliamentary debate feeding into the amount of media coverage. And, and I suppose in a sense, you know, um, this is probably a good thing in the sense that uh, if we believe that one of the cornerstones of uh, a functioning democracy is uh, a watchdog or a third estate or whatever that is engaged with the political process and in turn is influenced by the political process, this this seems to suggest that that process is, is going on in one way or another um, in this, again, small microcosm of uh, a debate about Rwanda. So there's a lot. So first of all, I will say that um, John is uh, far better at statistics than I am, especially while I'm still a cup of coffee too down this morning. Um, but the but the the analysis in the book is remarkably thorough, and I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, to go to to to, to buy the book or get the book and and look at his work because he's done 
an amazing amount of very careful, thorough uh, analysis and statistical work, and it deserves to be carefully considered. Um, we've taken a lot of your time, John. So, so to just quickly conclude the kind of discussion of the book, is there a is there a broad? And I know this is not fair, but uh, I I I guess I kind of am in charge, so I'll ask anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, is there a, just a lesson or two that you could abstract out of this book that looks at a particular crisis at a particular point in time for journalists or policymakers or or citizens, I suppose, about the relationship between media and policy decisions um, and how they get made at moments of crisis? Hmm. So it's a good question, and and in a sense, some of it is, um, uh, I don't want to say idle speculation, but close to Mm -hmm. idle speculation on my part, which is not analyzed statistically and so for which I don't have some, you know, piece of evidence that is uh, undeniable and and confirms what I'm about to say. I I guess there are a couple of things. So one is that, um, uh, you know, if you look at the types of concepts that appear to influence the amount of parliamentary debate, and you understand that that varies depending where we are in a crisis, if you are uh, an NGO or a government or uh, a political actor of one form or another, um, you can uh, gather uh, ideas about the things that you want to be reported in the media that are likely to have an effect on mm-hmm. on parliamentary debate. Now, um, th- th- there's a big you know loop that takes place between the reference and and parliamentary debate, but nevertheless, you can start to get an idea or glean clues as to the kind of discussion that's going to gather attention for a particular crisis. Um, and again, it's borne out, you know, what I was just describing about human rights, military intervention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's, that's one important um, point. Um, the second is that, you know, there are um, there is a distinction in in the nature of coverage um, between these different types of story, and that we can have highly successful or very successful or good quality reporting on a crisis and the political response to it, but that is not going to necessarily produce the editorials that we think are going to actually ultimately influence political decision making. Um, and so, if again you're uh, looking at the channels of influence, good reporting is a prerequisite. It gives you ideas about the types of story and and nature of words that need to be used. But that discussion in the editorial rooms, as General Dallaire um, pointed out for this book, uh, is is absolutely central. Um, Hmm. So I think that those are two uh, broad um, conclusions that one can make based on the analysis. The other one is, and this is where I enter into the realm of, of um, partially informed speculation, uh, is that, uh, you know, in the heat or in the midst of um, a large scale crisis, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to run against the grain of established orthodoxy and established wisdom in whatever issue it might be. I think that this probably applies to, uh, domestic issues on the economy, or uh, in Canada, Aboriginal rights, or whatever it might be, First Nations, etc. Um, and I think certainly it was the case in Rwanda um, that you know there was uh, uh, an understanding 
um, of where we were in in the cycles of changes in global politics. Again, I refer back to Margaret Thatcher's uh, comment on the beginning of nonsense, um, but also that there was not a clear understanding of of how one could deal with such crises most effectively and what uh, place the use of force had um, and what the realities were on the ground. And so, in a sense, you know, policy change in the aftermath of a crisis uh, appears to be um, uh, easier to achieve. Now, I make the point in the book that, you know, that means that 1 million people in Rwanda, 800,000, however we want to calculate it, um, were in a crucible um, that changed the practice of the international system for how long we have yet to see. Um, but that's of little comfort to the family of those 800,000 people. Um, but, you know, it's the it's the political science point where the, uh, you know, a political decision-making point um, versus wanting to do something to alleviate uh, an, uh, a, a crisis at the time that it's taking place. So I think those are maybe three sort of broad observations. Um, yeah. No, that's fascinating. I'm, you've given me a lot to chew on. Um, okay. So, so, so that's great. Thank um, I was, I always end with the same question. Um, mm. although I have to preface it a little bit different because usually I preface this question with what should I read this weekend? And mm. in the U S anyway, it's coming close to the end of the spring semester. And I'd be lying to everyone if I said I was going to read anything other than exams <laughs> um, and student papers, but, but in a week or two, yeah. All things come to an end and I'll have a weekend in theory where I have time to read and reflect. Um, is there something you read or maybe watched or heard while you were doing this research um, that either changed your way of thinking or touched you on, a, on an emotional level? What, what should the listeners and I read? Oh, gosh. Um... I mean, part of the challenge is that this, it took me so long to complete this book that I read an awful lot of things in the intervening yeah. period. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I remember, um, and, and I think mainly, you know, uh, Percy Jackson to my son and the Chronicles of Narnia to my daughter. So I can recommend both of those. Um, and they're both uh, cheaper to purchase than this book, uh, and also make <laughs> the reader more awake. Um, I mean, I, I found, so as I was trying to write this up, um, I mentioned my father before and my mother, and of course they both had a huge impact in terms of my uh, personal life, with, which goes without saying, but also academically. And um, my father uh, is a historical geographer, um, and he wrote a book called Land Power and Economics on the Frontier of Upper Canada, which won uh, this thing called the Meridian Award, which is kind of the... Uh, outstanding nerds scholarly work in geography right kind of the best book or scholarly contribution um and he won it in 2001 and i remember um both of course reading it before it was published but then coming back to it afterwards for the following reason i said you know at the outset that um you know quantitative analysis can sometimes just be overwhelming and um, and one really has to ask why one is applying multivariate statistics or whatever it might be. And then in turn, to make sure that when you write it up, um, that it's written with the substance of the content in mind and not with the statistics up front. And so I am. Um, so I actually turned back to my father's uh, book, um, Land, Power and Economics, and more recently, The Ordinary huh. People of Essex. Um, just as a way of looking at it, and hopefully he won't listen, so he, he won't realize that I'm paying him a compliment. Um, but just as a way of trying to see, okay, how has, because my dad's work is heavily, is similar. I mean, he's, he's a history, 
historian in one sense, but he um, was at uh, the start of the quanti quantitative revolution in, in the social sciences. And so he's, he's much more of a number cruncher and far more clever about these things than I am. And so I turned to his work just to see how it was that he'd written some of his conclusions up. Um, and that was also interesting because, you know, at the end of some of these things, having done some of these interviews, um, you know, you have an insight into, and, and as, as I said, I mean, I have the additional advantage of the people that I interview being alive, whereas my father works in the mid 1800s. And so, um, in upper Canada, and so they tend to not be around quite as much. Um, but you know, you have this insight into how people thought about things. Um, and, and in a way, writing that up in a manner that is true to the analysis, but also is, um, I don't want to say kind or charitable, but which is, which is faithful to the actual person. You know, it's very easy when you meet, um, people who are in decision-making roles to, um, you know, be dismissive or very critical of the decisions that they took and perhaps not to listen as carefully as to why they, took a particular decision and and even if one agrees to understand that there were there were reasons and explanations even if one disagrees with them and i think that 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 ability to have um dialogue uh with those with whom you disagree is probably more important now than ever before yeah. um not just not just academically but i think uh politically in many g8 countries uh you know finding a way to talk to the person and the necessity of talking to the person that you disagree most with is now most more important than ever before. Um, so there you go. That, that's my thought on what to read. My dad's book, The Chronicles of Narnia and Percy Jackson, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> well, it's a great point. And I, I try and help my students understand that um, in a world in which the culture is not necessarily encouraging them to be that open and, and aware. So I appreciate your making it. And I appreciate the time that you've taken. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. The book is is excellent, and and I hope that people will go out and um, and look it up and read it. But thank you so much for your time, Kelly. Thank you very much, and thank you for hosting this series. I think it's uh, it's really great that you do this, um, both for the authors and also to you know generously expose the work of others and allow um, them to gain a broader audience for work that often uh, remains hidden, um, you know, in the bowels of libraries. So thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, and I hope uh, I hope we'll have a chance to have you on again. But until then, have a great rest of your year. Bye-bye. Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with John Nathaniel Clark about his new book, British Media and the Rwandan Genocide. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I talk with Adam Smith and John Cox about the way they went about writing textbooks about genocide. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.